Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. We appreciate it. Here we are wrapping up what has been a very busy week, an historic week in many ways, and glad you've joined us. We'll be talking a little bit later on with Jonathan Coppas, an assistant professor at the University of Illinois. He was part of the uh, the ag transition team for the incoming Biden administration. We'll get his thoughts on uh, how that went, the, the types of uh, things that they covered and what he expects to see in ag policy from the new Biden administration. We'll also be talking about market development work around the globe. We'll talk with Melissa Kessler with the U.S. Grains Council as we start a new year, look back on the challenges of 2020 and the continuing challenges of still a global pandemic and dealing with that and trying to develop these markets around the globe. How is that being handled and what are some of the successes and some of the markets we should be watching as we move into 2021? So all that coming up on today's program. But I'm very happy to start things off today with someone that's uh, not new to Adams on Agriculture. We've had him on several times in the past, but before he was the energy reporter for Reuters. Then he went to politics and he was out on the campaign trail and now he's moved his way up all the way to the White House. The Reuters White House reporter Jarrett Renshaw joins us. Jarrett, welcome back to AOA. Glad I was able to catch you. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, Mike. How's things? Well, that's good. Well, uh, let's see. We met a while back when we were walking the halls of a national ethanol conference, now you're walking the halls of the White House. That's uh, it's been quite a quite a ride for you. Yeah, it's been fun. I mean, I, you know, with COVID kind of took some of the, the, the live events aspect of the 2020 campaign trail, um, but um, obviously there was no uh, starving for news this cycle. So um, it was an interesting time to be have a front row seat to all this and I'm looking forward to a front row seat in, in the next four years, and let's see how this Biden administration does. I saw some uh, uh, interesting tweets uh, following you on Twitter, and I thought of this too. In the uh, White House press corps, you're probably the only one that can really uh, talk about and understand RENs and the renewable fuel standard and small refinery exemptions. Sure, uh, no doubt. Um, you know, it's a, it's an issue that uh, certainly obviously is near and dear to folks in the Midwest. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, specifically early on, we're going to be kind of watching, at least me because of my uh, previous experience, kind of watching for signals of where the Biden administration goes on this. And I think, you know, I, I certainly come to it with a, a level of experience and kind of knowing the language that, you know, that I'm certainly going to use as a crutch early on and then try to see, uh, see, see where the administration is going on that. And let me ask you about that. We've heard candidates before, often on the campaign trail, running for office, especially uh, for the presidency, uh, and especially when they're in the Midwest, they would express their support for ethanol and biofuels. Then sometimes their actions didn't always follow up those words. And then we often we had the discussion, you and me, about uh, 
the connection or disconnect between President Trump and his EPA administrator? Was the EPA administrator working on his own or following uh, you know, directions from the White House on these uh, biofuels issues? What are you expecting from the Biden administration and incoming administrator Michael Regan when it comes to these uh, RFS issues? Well, Biden has been was outspoken um, and critical of the refining waiver. So I, I, I do think, generally speaking, he he is going to be more aligned um, with the ethanol and biofuel community on the on the waivers themselves. Um, obviously, we have that Supreme Court decision that's that could influence and kind of handcuff maybe some decisions. Um, but I think, generally speaking, um, the Biden administration is in line with what the Midwest feels about the waivers. Um, on the RFS and the volumes, I'm anticipating a, a pretty non-controversial rollout here. Um, you know, I don't think he's going to uh, do anything that's going to surprise anybody on the volumes. Where, where I think we're going to see some activity is a move to a, a kind of a national low-carbon fuel standard um, and some kind of kind of nationalized credit system that that puts electric vehicles and 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 renewable fuel and all that in kind of the same bucket um so i think there's going to be that's something to watch and how that policy shapes shakes out i think is a you know a, a theme that i'm certainly going to be playing close attention to um and and there's there's every reason to believe that the biofuel community is already preparing for um, those discussions. Um, so, so that's one thing. And then I think, you know, Biden's been very pro electric vehicles. Um, that's something that he has talked about a lot. Um, and you'll see some alignment between the, the oil industry and the ethanol and biofuel industry, uh, against electric vehicles in some way. Um, obviously electric vehicles don't consume liquid fuels and ethanol is a liquid fuel. So, um, that's something I'm watching that tension and, and whether the common, finally common ground among oil and ethanol folks um, brings them mm. closer together. Yeah, ironically, that issue might actually bring an alliance between the, the biofuels and the oil industries. We're talking with Reuters White House reporter Jarrett Renshaw. Well, one of President Biden's first actions is connected with the energy and is, is already controversial because it's a controversial project. That's his uh, move to stop work on the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, what are you hearing on that and uh, the reaction to that decision? Uh, well, uh, as you stated, uh, you know, he is going to uh, seek perm uh, uh, block permitting of, of that pipeline. I think, you know, the, the reaction's been, I would say, somewhat mixed. Um, Certainly, uh, I saw uh, Senator Grassley obviously came out uh, against the, the blocking of it. Um, and I think Republicans in general have uh, used this to show that that this administration is hostile to, to energy in general. Um, and, and that there's no doubt. I mean, one thing I learned about covering the energy beat, and I think you can't overstate it, is it is a job monster. It does it is a economic engine, and and Biden would be smart to un, you know, and he does understand the, the economic components of that. And I think Republicans are going to use that as a to cudgel Biden on those issues. So I think 
you know, it certainly appeals to his base. He certainly um, is, I think, very hostile to fossil fuels, and this is part of that. And, and, and you know, the Keystone Pipeline's been kicked around as a political football for about a decade now. So uh, it, it, I don't think it came as any, any surprise. Um, and uh, honestly, Mike, I think it's probably uh, well, I, I can't see a forward. Also impacts relations with uh, Canada, so we'll be watching that as well. Well, Jarrett, again, congratulations, and uh, we look forward to checking in with you uh, throughout this uh, administration. Appreciate your insight. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. All right, take care. Jarrett Renshaw, Reuters White House reporter. Stay with us. Up next, we'll talk with Melissa Kessler with the U.S. Grains Council. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Michael Formica joins us, Assistant Vice President, Domestic Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. Michael, thanks for joining us. Tell us about this new campaign. So we launched a new campaign yesterday called Farming Today for Tomorrow. And the goal and the purpose is pork producers for 50 years or more have really been incredibly progressive in leading the way in improvements not only to the industry and how we're raising the animals, but there are benefits from all of those improvements with the direct focus on the environment and environmental improvement. We've got much reduced uh, water quality issues, got complete control of our manure. We, we keep adopting and developing new conservation methods, for soil conservation purposes. We are constantly reducing our air emission profile. And then through all of this, there's a, you know, there's a real co-benefit on the, on the climate side. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. And in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Have you written a book and want to get it published? Then call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 immediately. That's 800-955-4538. Page Publishing is looking for authors of all types of books. And unlike most publishers, Page Publishing will take the time to review each and every book submitted to them and give you their feedback. If they like what they read, they'll get your book into bookstores and for sale online at Amazon, the Apple iTunes Store, Barnes & Noble, and other outlets. They handle everything. Editing, cover design, copyright protection, printing, publicity, and distribution. So if you've written a novel, children's book, cookbook, inspirational work, poetry, or a biography and want to get it published, then you need to call Page Publishing and do it immediately. Call 800-955-4538 now for your free author submission kit. Again, for your free author submission kit, call 800-955-4538. That's 800-955-4538. Your road to fame and fortune could very well start with this simple phone call. Call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 for your free author submission kit. 
You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, doing global market development work during a global pandemic is certainly challenging. Let's talk about those challenges with Melissa Kessler, U.S. Grains Council Strategic Relations Director. Melissa, thanks for joining us. Has it gotten any easier here in the first part of 2021? Uh, What is the situation around the world in these markets that you're working in? Yeah, Mike, thanks so much for having me on today. And um, for, you know, in talking about this important topic, I think, you know, we all know um, those export markets remain even more critical and we're seeing the impact they're having on uh, prices and, you know, kind of farmers' realities. Um, over the last couple of months, it's been very interesting to watch, particularly as China's come in. So to your question, um, the first few months of this year, you know, really we're seeing uh, some similarities to what we experienced most of last year. And in some markets that had begun to open up and have some in-person programs, unfortunately, we've had some folks go back to, you know, more strict lockdowns. Um, But we are pushing ahead with virtual programs and have really found ways as we go uh, to make those high quality efforts that are getting information to customers. Of course, this is the season where we really focus on corn quality, um, you know, immediately post-harvest and uh, as the corn is making its way through the export chain um, to be shipped overseas. And our customers, I think, are even more interested in that information this year than in a typical year. Yeah, you can provide the information. That's important. But I often talk about this. Uh, An important part of market development is establishing, developing a relationship, a personal relationship with these uh, buyers in other countries. And a lot of that has been done traditionally in face-to-face meetings. Uh, How much more difficult is it to do through Zoom and and through uh, that kind of technology? Yeah, it's a really interesting experience because in some ways it's become easier with some customers and in some ways, of course, it's much harder. Um, You know, we would really love to be able to bring people to the United States to see the grain chain. And frankly, we really love to be able to send our consultants and send our staff into um, some of these markets where we either don't have local people or we would traditionally be traveling there regularly. Um, The Zoom situation, we've been doing virtual trade teams, basically. So a Zoom version of what customers would see when they come to the U.S. We've partnered with our state corn and sorghum organizations, the sorghum checkoff, um, as well as barley organizations to do those. And they're they're successful. It's, it's very different for sure, um, but it still offers the opportunity for people to see a lot of the infrastructure and the crops um, that they, they really want to see. Obviously, they don't have that visceral experience, um, but in some ways, they're able to see more. And one interesting phenomena we've noticed is we're able to have kind of more and different stakeholders participate in those because it doesn't have a travel requirement. So especially in Asia, um, we've been able to reach kind of higher levels of certain companies and organizations um, than in the past because we're not asking people to get on a plane for a week. Um, and we've also, you know, typically focused our teams on nutritionists or grain buyers or management of companies. And now we can have all those people in a room together and that creates new conversations. Um, it's not the visceral experience, but it does have some benefits. And also, frankly, on the farmer side, you know, it's, it is 
um, challenging, you know, with um, internet situations sometimes for farmers to participate in these. But those that do have told us they got a lot out of it. Um, and we've had a couple of examples in the last few weeks of meetings where we've had farmers participate and they're able to bring, you know, multiple generations of their family um, into those meetings, either, you know, their fathers um, or their kids who are interested in coming back to the farm. From our perspective, that's a wonderful thing to really show the reality of American agriculture to our customers overseas. And also it's nice for more people to understand the types of programs we're doing and why it's important to spend that time with customers directly. Yeah, so there are some positives in this. We're talking with Melissa Kessler with the U.S. Grains Council. All right, Melissa, we talk a lot about China, but let's look at some of the other markets that you're working in and uh, kind of give us an idea of uh, of that work and maybe some of the successes you've uh, been able to uh, achieve here this past year. Yeah, so the past year, I mean, as everyone knows, has been truly unique and unusual. Um, the good news is we have people around the globe locally, and so a lot of times those programs are able to continue, albeit, you know, possibly in different ways. Um, we've been conducting aquaculture trials in Southeast Asia, um, which we know is a big emerging market that's going to require a lot of feed grains. Um, we have in Latin America really been able, again, kind of through the power of the virtual piece, while we don't get that in-person, you know, kind of deep um, connection, we are able to reach new customers and bring them together in new ways also um, through more personalized webinars, which has been a good thing. Um, obviously, you know, the China factor cannot be understated. That's a huge thing and, and also increases the demand for information about what's going on in the markets all over the globe because China is such a big player. Um, we're hopeful, you know, moving forward, there are some emerging markets that we really want to focus on beyond just China. Um, of course, Southeast Asia is a growing uh, area of the world in population and in economic might. And they really have, you know, not been as hard hit, although they have been hard hit by the COVID situation. So we think the economy there will recover um, easier in some ways. And so, you know, that combination of demand and, you know, economic development and the potential, we hope, for trade policy into the future, you know, for markets like Vietnam, that's really where we're putting a lot of our focus. Um, we've also been able to, over the past several years, um, kind of expand some of our programs from North Africa um, into East and West Africa. That's a longer term play for sure. Um, but we know, again, growing populations, um, potential for policy development, um, you know, economic drivers that, you know, one hopes after COVID continue to be there um, that are going to going to lead to more protein demand and also, frankly, um, long-term, more fuel demand, which implicates ethanol. I was going to ask you about that because for all the buying that China has done, they've not been buying ethanol and ethanol uh, byproducts. Uh, there was mm -hmm. at one time that was starting to become a, a growing market and there was hopes it was going to become a huge market for ethanol and ethanol products. Is, is there anything happening there that would uh, make us think we'll we'll actually see some of those sales into China? Yeah, so those are both, um, you know, I think both the example of ethanol and DDGs point out the importance of policy. And, you know, um, I think it's pretty clear that the market would demand both of those products, 
China has an E10 mandate. Um, they also obviously have a booming feed sector. We can just look at the amount of corn they're importing and see that. Um, but the, you know, the economics of the situation do not pan out right now. Um, we did see a little bit of ethanol go into China. Um, that was kind of an anomaly. I think, you know, we're very hopeful that moving forward that those those trade policy issues can really be dealt with so we can get those markets open because of course they're they're game changers i mean anyone watching um the corn markets have seen you know the power and might of china it's just such a big market um and we know that impact can happen on the ethanol and DDG side also and would would definitely be a game changer for those industries you mentioned africa obviously there's demand there but what about their ability to to buy from us yeah, so I mean, I think that this is one of the most exciting things really about market development is what we're trying to do is obviously sell U.S. products. Um, but a lot of times it's a long term play and doing that involves helping an industry um, and an economy grow locally. So, you know, taking the example of North Africa, helping a poultry industry really establish itself there. Um, that means, you know, associations, developing good policy, as well as, you know, feeding trials and the more traditional, very agronomic pieces. Um, and, and that is, it's kind of a mutually beneficial cycle, right? By helping those industries build up, um, that is also increasing the economic, uh, you know, viability of those industries themselves and therefore the eventual need for imports. Um, obviously, you know, COVID has been devastating to economies um, all over the world. It's been challenging even, of course, to our own. And so, you know, we shall see how that continues this year. And also, I think um, that's going to offer some opportunities in kind of a, you know, you got to find a silver lining sort of way um, for us to work with companies, work with individuals, work with industries um, that frankly need technical assistance we can provide um, and also, you know, need help growing uh, and want to professionalize in that process and want, want the resources we're able to provide. All right, Melissa, thanks a lot. We'll hope for a big year of exports here in 2021. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mike. Melissa Kessler, U.S. Grains Council Strategic Relations Director. All right, up next, as the Biden administration uh, starts taking over and getting people in place, we start uh, trying to figure out what is their, especially their ag policy, but also energy policy, what, what are those going to be? Jonathan Kappas, assistant professor at the University of Illinois, was on the Ag Transition team. We'll find out what they talked about, what he thinks will be coming from this new administration. That's next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. The landscape of media has changed, and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Carbon monoxide is a colorless, odorless gas that can be fatal. Don't use anything indoors that burns fuel, such as gasoline-powered generators, camp stoves and lanterns, or charcoal grills. Opening doors and windows or using fans isn't enough. 
Have your vents and chimneys checked to make sure water heater and gas furnace exhausts aren't blocked. If you feel sick, dizzy, or weak while using a generator, get to fresh air right away. From the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. Gray markets are lower on the Board of Trade today, looking to end this week on a softer note. South American weather and crop prospects turning higher have been at the heart of the selling this week. On the Board of Trade, March corn is trading six cents lower at 518 and a fraction. The May contract down five and three quarters at 520 and a half cent. March soybeans trading 13 cents lower at 1357 and a quarter. The May contract down 13 cents at 13.55 and three quarters. Looking at the wheat, Chicago wheat march down 16 and a half cent at 6.44 and a quarter. Kansas City wheat march down 12 and a half cent at 6.23. Minneapolis spring wheat march down 12 and a fraction at 6.23. The May contract down 12 and a half cent at 6.32 and a fraction. Livestock market futures during the week have been nothing less than impressive given the momentum and the ability to break through resistant levels over the last Last few days, traders will focus on two significant reports Friday to help confirm the market support well into next week. April lean hogs trading a dollar seventy-five higher at seventy-five sixty-five. The May contract up a dollar fifty-five at eighty oh two. Looking at the feeder cattle contracts, March a dollar two higher at one forty seventeen. The April contract up ninety-five at one forty-two eighty-two. April live cattle up seventy-five cents at one twenty seventy. The June contract up forty at one seventeen fifty-two. In cash cattle country, asking prices for cattle left on show lists are around $112 in the south and $175 in the north. Wednesday and Thursday's trade came in at mostly $110 live in the south, steady to weak with the prior week's weighted averages. Northern dress deals were mostly at $172 to $173 per hundredweight. Beef cutouts are expected to be higher with light to moderate box movement. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Raw. I can't get my computer to work. Let me help you with that. How'd you do that? I just got techie with Geeks On Site. Our geeks literally come on site. No need to stop what you're doing or block off time. We come to your home, office, or wherever you are. And we don't just fix whatever computer issues you might be having. We explain and teach you along the way so you can feel empowered and then help others at home or in your office. Better yet, don't have time for tech support to come to you? Let us remote into your desktop or laptop, and one of our geeks will instantly walk you through. We offer affordable prices on our remote services and IT support. You and those in your office will never have to wait hours to have your technical questions answered. Get your free computer diagnosis today with your very own geek. Get started now and we'll help you instantly. Call 866-967-3879. 866-967-3879. That's 866-967-3879. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, so we continue to try to get a a handle on what we might see coming as far as Ag and energy policies from and trade policies even from the uh, the new Biden administration. Joining us now is Jonathan Coppice. 
University of Illinois Assistant Professor, Agricultural and Consumer Economics. He was on the transition team uh, for the Biden administration. And Jonathan, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Give us an idea of the types of things that you covered in your work on that team. Well, good morning, Mike. It's good to talk to you again. And uh, yeah, so I was I was very fortunate uh, and honored, frankly, to uh, to be a volunteer for uh, for what we call the agency review process or the agency review team um, for USDA transition. And you know, kind of I, I joke that it's sort of kind of mechanistic and maybe even boring sounding, right? We we were the the group trying to review agency budgets and hiring and personnel issues and regulatory, you know, the position on regs and the operation of programs and all of that. So it's really a sort of, uh, uh, you know, a, a kind of a technical process that the, the, the main work product is to hand off to the incoming political team, uh, you know, our, our best understanding of the state of the agency where issues are and, and kind of help them be prepared to get started and hopefully help them to get off to a successful start uh, to their leadership time uh, at USDA. So does your work on that team and the dialogue you had with the Biden team, does that give you any uh, kind of insight on where you think they might go when it comes to ag and energy and trade policies? Well, I don't think that gives any any particular insight. I mean, I think what uh, you know what we were instructed to and what we sort of tried to adhere to are the very uh, promises and goals that President Biden had in his campaign. Um, that we kept that as the lens through which we worked. So things like trying to help build back better at USDA and rural communities, uh, issues. You know, issues around operational needs for things like addressing climate change. Uh, we, you know, we're certainly aware of the trade issues, um, and and uh, just trying to, you know, piece together, um, you know, how things look so that the new team can come in as prepared as possible. When it comes to climate issues and climate policy, I think, based on past history, there is kind of a natural defensive. Uh, reflex that agriculture takes when this topic comes up because it's more of a feeling, okay, what regulatory burdens are they going to put on us and what's going to be taken away? Uh, But should we also even more so be looking at the opportunities that could open up to agriculture with some of these uh, policies coming uh, that we expect to be coming from this administration? Mike, I think that's a, a really good point and, you know, kind of the, the tough way uh, forward on this topic. There are concerns and, and good concerns about how it gets translated into whether that be regulation or cost issues uh, at the farm level. But there is also an incredible amount of opportunity for farmers to be a productive role in the efforts that we need to, uh, frankly, undertake as a nation to stave off uh, a catastrophe in the making under climate change. So it, it, is a, it is a significant opportunity, and that opportunity is both in shaping regulations so they make sense, right? There has to be a ground level, field level bit of common sense applied to any efforts uh, on climate change. At the same time, there will be um, tremendous opportunities because of the just thinking through the land footprint alone uh, in agriculture thinking through the vast uh, you know, policy apparatus around agriculture from 
conservation programs to crop insurance to direct assistance programs. There's just a lot there to work with, and farmers can be a, a huge voice, a huge participant in this effort. Um, and, you, you know, you think just from the very uh, basic level of your own farm operation, if this creates new market opportunities, then, we, then you have a new way to, uh, you know, capture uh, revenue streams and at the same time contribute to a larger effort um, to stave off the worst of, of what all of science pretty much uh, tells us is, is headed our way. So I do think it's, it's a balance. I do think it's a difficult undertaking, but I think that it would be, frankly, not productive or even possible without agriculture at the table and contributing in a, um, in a, in a really productive manner. We're talking with Jonathan Coppas, assistant professor, University of Illinois. He was on the uh, transition team for the for the Biden administration. Uh, how important is it to, for Tom Vilsack to be coming back to USDA after having been in that position for eight years? Uh, talk about the importance of that, the value of his experience there that it brings to this process. Well, I want to be careful because I, I you know, was a part of, uh, of the effort. But, you know, from my uh, you know, my personal views, um, I think uh, Secretary Vilsack is a strong leader. I think he is a, uh, well, he, he did a great job for eight years. I think he'll do a great job again uh, once he's confirmed, hopefully. Um, you know, I think he's somebody that really cares about the topics or the issues that, that USDA covers. I mean, it covers a large range of policy needs and issues from helping hungry people eat to making sure farmers have risk management tools to succeed, to the conservation and forestry issues, to research and so forth. So he's very uh, he's very engaged. He's um, you know he's experienced. So he is not going to have sort of a learning curve uh, that can can be uh, the part of any uh, return any anybody taking on a role as as large, complex, and important as a secretary of agriculture. So. I have you know great confidence in him. I think uh, we we have reason to have great confidence, um, and I think we can see USDA be a really productive partner in the governing uh, goals of this new administration. Jonathan, I ask you to kind of wear both hats here, for both your uh, for being a assistant professor in ag and consumer economics uh, that hat, as well as your work in in, in government work uh, that hat. Um, your assessment of where we are with the ag economy right now, I mean, we're coming off a year of great challenges, uh, huge amounts of, of uh, government aid into the ag economy. Now we're enjoying a strong market rebound and remains to be seen how long that lasts, but it certainly provided a boost here. So as we're in, going into 2021, uh, your thoughts on the ag economy and how government policies may uh, impact that this year? Well, that's no, that's no easy question. That it's a really big uh, question, and and something obviously that um, we're all kind of trying to sort out. I, I think if I uh, if I if I really kind of um, step into it a bit, you have to pardon me. I, I kind of get into my uh, my history geek mode more than anything else, and try to fit where we are now uh, kind of into the history of our development of these policies and our ag economy over time. And I really do think um, we've, we've hit a key point um, based on just uh, the, the trade upheaval, the massive amount of new payments issued in ways we've not seen, uh, designed kind of on the fly, frankly, um, with very different uh, provisions and operational aspects. And then 
with the COVID pandemic, something that you know we simply haven't seen in our in our lived memory that that, that our policy certainly uh, has not experienced. You know, we we've got a lot of a lot of things thrown at the system and a lot of potential change along the way, and then we start to you know add in the the other driver around climate change and the need to get to work there. Um, I, I think there is a very uh, difficult unknown for the future, to, to say the least. But I also think that's not something to be concerned about if we're willing to, to, to shoulder the effort and the burden and really lead towards uh, a better set of outcomes. And I, I go back you know, to the climate change example. Um, I, think it's, I think there's a valuable discussion around uh, program and policy design focused on that and that, that helps uh, farmers you know, develop new market opportunities as well as manage the risks. I mean, the risks of a changing climate for, for agriculture are immense. And if we have that kind of risk for our ability to produce food, then the risk to our society is, is, is also immense. So, again, I think we're at a, at a pretty critical, you know, turning point, if you will, or inflection point, um, because we have come through, uh, we're actually still working our way through quite a bit, and we have uh, some real challenges ahead of us. And what, it, what we take away from history is that it's moments like this uh, in which creative policy solutions can really um, come through and help, but also tend to kind of change the direction of things. And so, you, you know, you can pick your sort of historical example, like, uh, you know, like, frankly, the Great Depression and the New Deal efforts. Um, that launched what we consider our modern uh, farm policy apparatus. You know, how does how do the lessons from that apply, and what might we see um, as we try to adjust um, to the changes that have happened in the last few years? And again, the 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 real the real uh, big issue down the road around climate, um, around you know some of the challenges we have as a society, frankly, as we've watched. Uh, the very difficult uh, matters a couple weeks ago in the Capitol. Um, there's a lot to it right now, and there is a really big and important role, I think, for American agriculture. Jonathan, thanks for your uh, perspective, your insight uh, as being part of that transition team. We'll look forward to talking with you more in the future. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you again. Mike, it's always good to talk to you. I look forward to our uh, future conversations. Take care. Take care. Jonathan Coppas, University of Illinois Assistant Professor, Agricultural and Consumer Economics, and uh, on that the tr- transition team for the Biden administration. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Climate issues, climate policy, we'll be talking a lot about that in the next few years. All right, coming up, E15 becoming more available. We're going to talk about uh, how that is happening as a, a major supplier is uh, expanding its Uh, offerings of E15. That's coming up next here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering, and your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. 
Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Adams on Agriculture prides itself on bringing top leaders in the egg industry right to your radio speakers. AOA wants to continue that conversation right to your fingertips. Follow AOA on Twitter at AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams himself at the handle Mike Adams Egg. You will receive real-time highlights of the show and keep up with which convention or industry meeting AOA is attending. That's AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams Egg. We hope to see you online. Adams on Agriculture, conversations with policymakers, the movers and shakers in the ag industry, the pros and cons of issues important to you, cutting through the spin to get to the heart of the topic and giving you the information you need to know. Every weekday, Mike Adams brings you a guest important to the ag industry. It's quite simply information farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Adams on Agriculture. Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business with than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. What kitchen gadget is so essential to food safety that no home should be without it? I'm registered dietitian nutritionist Toby Smithson. A food thermometer isn't just for meat and poultry. It will help you avoid food poisoning from egg dishes, casseroles, and leftovers by ensuring they're fully cooked by reaching a safe minimum internal temperature. Heat leftovers and casseroles to at least 165 degrees and egg dishes to at least 160 degrees. You'll find more food safety tips at homefoodsafety.org. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Kurt Blade, Senior Vice President, Ag Services for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Finally, we have a big market rally to talk about, and I'm sure will impact, uh, if not now, eventually the sales numbers. These are the numbers from December. The rally, of course, has gone on since then, but was already being felt at that time. Are we starting to see any reflection in, in your sales numbers yet? As we look at the December numbers for tractors and combine sales throughout 2020, I think one word 
to describe the whole thing is surprised in that numbers exceeded expectations throughout the entire year. We finished the year 2020 with really some strong numbers across the tractor segment, very much driven by the under 40 horsepower tractors, but really saw some strength across all tractors in the month of December. And that carried on to sort of the whole year being above expectations and quite a bit above where we were this time last year. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, over the past few years, we've seen E15 really take off as one of the fastest growing alternative fuels in the country. And as a result, it's becoming an increasing topic of conversation among fuel retailers and some vehicle owners. Today, we're joined by Akhtar Hussein, a fuels expert at Cinex, the energy brand of CHS, to talk about what vehicle owners should know about E15 and how to determine if it could be an option for you. Akhtar, let's start with the the basics here. I think a a lot of people understand E15 is 15% ethanol, 85% gasoline, but uh, this is something that perhaps some motorists still aren't familiar with and they still have questions about. So let's explain again just what exactly is E15. Sure. Um, E15 is a domestically produced clean-burning substitute for traditional gasoline. And as you mentioned, E15 is comprised of 15% ethanol and 85% gasoline. Anytime a consumer sees a fuel at a gas station with an E in front of it, that E, the number directly after that, is really explaining what percentage of that fuel is ethanol-based versus gasoline-based. And why is E15 a good fuel option for motorists to consider? Well, recently, the EPA made a rule change in the laws that govern E15, which allow it to be sold year-round. That really, for Senex, was the major hurdle that we needed to cross in order for us to be able to offer it more widely at our network of Senex convenience stores. So as soon as the EPA took that action, we began taking steps at CHS to really increase the availability of E15 throughout our branded retail network. And the Senex brand is currently the only refiner brand that has taken the action that we have to improve market access of E15. CHS plays a unique role in the supply chain as we are a refiner. We own two refineries in the United States. We also own ethanol plants, and we are the nation's largest farmer-owned cooperative. So for CHF and the Fenix brand, offering fuels like E15 make a lot of sense. And we think it's important to give not only our Fenix branded retailers, but also all the consumers they serve additional choices when it comes to what fuels they want to sell and what fuels consumers want to purchase. That's an important point. The availability of E15 is becoming more widespread and gives uh, motorists more options. Uh, what are some of the uh, reasons that uh, you would stress or emphasize that would uh, equipment owners need to know about E15 and why it's a benefit and an advantage to use the fuel? E15 is 
like we like I said before, it's a it's an alternative to a traditional gasoline. There are some important things to know as a consumer when you're making the decision uh, of what fuel to purchase for your vehicle. Uh, number one, it's important to understand what sort of fuel your vehicle requires. Generally, there's an octane requirement. Um, so some vehicles can operate on 87 octane. Uh, some require 91 octane and, and somewhere in between. So understanding the needs of your vehicle is step number one. Uh, step number two, or, or choice number two, is really to understand that E15, as defined by the EPA and the government, is suitable for use in model year 2001 or newer passenger vehicles. So if you're driving a vehicle older than 2001, um, E15 is not compatible with your vehicle. Uh, but to highlight some of the benefits, I mean, fuels like E15 support farmers. Uh, in the United States, uh, primarily in the Midwest, most of that ethanol comes from corn. So it's a huge benefit to our agricultural sector in the Midwest to choose fuels that use more ethanol. Um, it also, ethanol is a great octane substitute. So you're getting a little bit higher octane using E15 than you are when you choose a traditional 87 octane. That additional octane can, in some engines, boost performance. So uh, those are things that consumers can consider, really, when they're, uh, you know, when they're trying to make their fuel choice at the gas station. And I want to emphasize again what you said, because there's sometimes confusion about this, but vehicles, 2001 model year and newer, those are all uh, cleared and uh, uh, okay to run E15, 2001 and newer. So we want to emphasize that. Finally, Oktar, um, some final thoughts on E15 that folks need to know and where they can get more information. Sure. Well, first and foremost, all Fenix gasolines are top-tier certified, meaning that they have added detergents to really optimize engine performance. And E15 carries that same designation. So at Fenix locations, when you see uh, E15 for sale at a Fenix retailer, please know that it is top-tier certified, just like the rest of our suite of gasolines that we offer. Um, at Fenix locations, currently, we are offering E15 in select areas. We plan on, uh, based on demand, uh, to broaden that availability coming soon. So if you have questions as to whether or not your Fenix retailer offers E15, uh, look them up, give them a call, and, and find out. Uh, and most importantly, if you have any questions about Senex Gasolines or to find a location near you, please visit Senex.com and find our dealer locator, which can explain to you all the Senex locations in your area, as well as give you uh, more information on Senex fuels. That's Akhtar Hussein, a fuels expert at Senex, the energy brand of CHS talking about E15. Oktar, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. All right, that wraps it up for today and for the week. What a busy week it has been. Coming up on Monday, we'll keep you up to date on all the uh, breaking ag news. We'll also get the latest on the weather, both here in the U.S. as well as in South America, keeping close watch on that South American weather. And a Washington uh, update from 
Iowa Senator Charles Grassley. We'll be talking with Senator Grassley on Monday. His thoughts and uh, all the changes that are going on already. He has some concerns about uh, some early moves by the Biden administration. We'll talk with him about those and more. Uh, all that coming up on Monday. Have a safe weekend, everyone. Hope you'll join us again right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.